Okay, I'm going to read the Bible reading for today before James comes up and preaches to us. We're carrying on with the second week of our Colossians series. And this morning, the um, reading is from Colossians chapter 1, and we're doing verses 9 to 14. So if you want to open that, it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. And it says this. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We're in part two of our series in Colossians this morning. And what we're thinking about today is we're thinking about how we pray for others. We're thinking about how we intercede. We are thinking about how we go to our Heavenly Father and we ask our Heavenly Father, pleading with Him to move in the life of another in a significant way. Now, my hunch is when it comes to prayer, we could say in this room, there are plenty of things that we would agree upon when it comes to prayer, and then there's going to be plenty of things that we identify with one another in when it comes to our struggles with praying. Think about what we agree upon. I think we would all say that prayer matters. I think all of us would say that, right? Well, when you read the Bible, you say, we can see pretty plainly that prayer is a constant and a central feature within the life of a Christian. And prayer matters so much that one of our five values as a church is to be prayerfully dependent in all that we do. That's why we carve out time to pray in our service, pray in our community groups, pray when we serve. Carving out a whole evening of prayer night. We say prayer matters. We'd probably also agree on the fact that we would say prayer is powerful, right? We would say prayer affects change in this world and in the lives of people. And not only that, but prayer changes us too as we pray. I mean, it's just magnificent to think about that we get to go to our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus, who has died for us, lived the life we couldn't live. He's risen from the dead, and now we belong to Him. A new identity, hearts of stone are gone, hearts of flesh are there. We are new creations in Christ, and then we get to go as God's children with confidence and with humility and go to Him and pray. That's powerful. And we'd also agree on the fact that in prayer, there is this, there is this wonderful mystery, the very foundation of it. What do I mean by that? I mean this, that we have a totally and completely sovereign God who is over all, who is in all, who is orchestrating even the details of our world in our lives. And yet this same God chooses to listen to the prayers of people like us, feeble, frickle, fickle, and frail as we are. I love that, frickle, made of a word. <laughs> As we are, he chooses to listen to us and then moves in our world. I could say more. That's what we agree upon, right? 
But we can also identify some of the struggles, right? We, we know what it feels like to feel incredibly weak in prayer. To look around at everyone else and think that they seem to have got something that we don't. Sometimes we know what it's like to feel that distraction, don't we? To get to the end of the day and when our head, head hits the pillow, we suddenly realize I haven't even communed with my Heavenly Father. We know what it feels like to feel like our prayer lives are stale. To, to, to having, we've just prayed the same formula over and over again for years and we kind of think to ourselves, maybe there's some kind of life and a vitality in prayer that I seem to be missing. I need that vitality. Now, when it comes to prayer, I'm sure there are many more things that we could agree on about the nature of prayer, and there's many more things we could say, yeah, I struggle with that too. But I think what's true of all of us in this room is that there's room to grow in our understanding of prayer. That there is that desire within all of us for that enriching, for that reinvigoration, for that renewal when it comes to prayer. And I think there's probably no greater way to grow and to experience that rejuvenation in prayer than to pray for other people. You see, when we pray for other people, it causes us to look beyond the end of our noses and out of the sphere of our own lives. You see, what we find when somebody prays for another, it means we're setting aside our time, our energy, and we are, in a very sacrificial way, laboring in prayer for another. That there's something especially other persons centered in being able to pray for other people. It's, it's when we stand as an advocate. It's when we stand in the gap. It's when we mediate. It's, it's when we intercede. It's when we plead with our Heavenly Father that He would move in the life of another. Now, notice what we see this morning as Paul prays is he is praying for the Colossians. Now, what we have right here, we, we saw last week, we began our series in Colossians, and very soon after the introduction, Paul launches into a prayer, right? And this first half of the prayer is all about thanksgiving. So, so it's, we're thanking God for you, Colossians, for these key things that we see in your life. We are delighted. And he encourages them, because he, he says what he's been praying for. He tells them, keep going in the same trajectory. What we find in verse 9 is a pivot. He moves from thanksgiving and he then goes to praying for them. Going to his heavenly father saying, I specifically am asking for these things in the lives of the Colossians. Paul prays for them. So what I want to do this morning is understand what it is that he prays for them. Because so often when we see Paul's prayers in his letters in the New Testament... That gives us a pattern and a framework that we can use to pray for other people. If we're looking for that enriching and that reinvigoration in prayer, then I think it can be found by looking in the Bible and seeing how Paul prays for the Colossians. So let's take a look at that this morning. I'll ask the question, how does he pray? What are the specifics of his prayer? Why does he pray these things? Because if we could understand that, then we can understand more deeply and be more passionate about praying for other people. Now here's what we're going to find this morning, is that Paul prays in two very specific ways for the Colossians. That the first thing he asks for 
is, is the first thing, I kind of remember this, the first thing he asked for is that they would know rightly. Okay, that's the first thing. So what he's praying for is knowledge. The knowledge of his will. So the first thing, praying, uh, knowing rightly. The second thing he prays for is he asks that, is God to, to, to enable them to walk a worthy walk that's fully pleasing to him. And then what Paul does in this prayer is he details three key features of a worthy walk. Fruit, strength, and thanks. So really what we find here are the two things that Paul is praying for is that they would know rightly and then live distinctively. Those two are interconnected because what we know is going to affect how we live. Okay, So that's why he's praying. Live distinctively, praying for knowledge. Sorry, know rightly and then live distinctively in these three ways. So we're going to dive in and look at all of that. But as we go, I think what's going to be helpful for us to really land this in our lives today is to have somebody in our minds that we could be praying for, okay? I want you to just take a moment and think of someone who you could pray for. Someone who it would give you incredible amounts of joy to see them flourishing in Christ. Maybe someone, to bring it even closer down to the Colossians, somebody who's got loads of different voices, competing claims for what's true and how to live, And they're in the chaos of this world trying to figure out what is true. So maybe it's a baby Christian. Is there somebody in your life you could be praying for that they would know rightly and live distinctively? Maybe it's one of your kids as you think think about the hostile environment. They find themselves in school as a Christian. Maybe it's someone in the workplace that you know that faces the, the, the sneers from the colleagues. Maybe it's a missionary that you support and you know life is pressurized for them. I wonder, is it a spouse? Is it a friend? Is it somebody who you look at and you think, I'd just love to see them doing well in Jesus, to carry on as they have started. Now keep that person at the forefront of your mind because at the end of this this morning, we're going to come around and we're going to pray for who it is that you have in your mind and apply what, we're praying, what, what Paul's praying for right here. Okay. So let's jump into the first one. Paul prays that they would know rightly. He prays for knowledge. Have a look at this in verse 9. Here's the pivot in his prayer. And so, he writes, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice some of the things he's saying right here. We haven't ceased to pray for you. Now, we don't understand that to mean that Paul is saying, hey, Colossians, we've even given up eating and sleeping so we can pray for you. We just haven't stopped. I'd love to get some sleep. I've just stopped to write this letter. No, 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 it doesn't mean it like that. What he means is, is that when they heard about what's going on in the life of the Colossians, they were so taken by them and what God is doing in and through them and the challenges that they faced, that the Colossians have become a central key feature in the way that Paul and Timothy are praying. What does he say there? We pray for you, repeats this, asking. This gives us a clue that this is a prayer of intercession. He's going to God asking something for the Colossians. Now notice, when we see this in Paul's letters, I'm praying for you, I'm asking, that's often a window into one of Paul's deepest desires for the recipients of the letters that he writes. 
So if he wanted to boil down and distill exactly what it is he's aiming for in writing the letter, you look out for that phrase, praying for, asking, and you can see what he's after here. But notice what he says. I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now here's what I think Paul is praying here. He is asking God to enable the Colossians to know what it is that God wants for his people. The knowledge of his will right here. I think is Paul saying, we want you to know who is true, what is true. You need to know what it is that God wants for his people. That's what I think is going on. So if you could paraphrase this prayer right here, Paul is saying we are going to our Heavenly Father. We're not stopping. We're asking him that you would know what it is, what is true, who is true, and how to live it out. You need to know this. I want you to hear this. I want you to see it. I want you to stand on it. Notice what he says, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So so not only is it to, to know something, but it's to have the wisdom Wisdom is understanding God's way in God's world. No, the wisdom and understanding to figure out actually what is the truth they need to be standing on. That's what he's praying. Now, if you think about it, this is really important for the Colossians to know. We skimmed over this last week. We're going to do the same again today. We'll get there in more detail. But in chapter 2 and verse 8, we get this window into some of the challenges they are facing. Look at this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. So that shows us that one of the challenges the Colossian church is facing are false teachers. There are other voices in their lives that are telling them what's true. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, yeah, but like this. And oh no, 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 you have to live like, don't live like that, but like this. Oh, to, to, to know God and to know salvation mm, like this, you have to do this. And so they're facing these other voices, so it makes complete sense that one of the key prayers that Paul prays over them is that they would know God's will in and amidst voices that they are hearing. All of the noise, the religious and spiritual and cultural melee of Colossae. Know what is true. Know God's will. Wisdom and understanding. Hear the right voices. Discern what is true. Now if you think about it, this is a prayer that we can pray over other people, right? I understand that we're not in first century Colossae. But we are in a world where there are many voices that claim what truth is. And it seems to change by the day. Change with the wind. There are a lot of voices that say, no, no, this is true. This is how you need to live. This is what you need to know. And so one of the key things we need to be praying over other people is that we would be able to hear through this tsunami, this wall of all of these different voices and to be able to hear what it is that God has said. Now for the Colossians, that was coming from Epaphras. You would know what Epaphras said, but for us, it's know what God has revealed about himself, about our world, about us and salvation in the Bible. Let me show you what I mean by this. A few years ago, I went to go watch Ipswich Town Football Club play. Now, I go to watch them semi-regularly. I am a terrible Ipswich fan. I'll admit that. I've supported them all of my life. 
But I'll say this, I am a fair-weather Ipswich fan, so when life is going good, there's me in the stands cheering, but we're in League One at the moment, this is not good, it looks a bit shabby when I go visit the stadium, I'm not very happy, so I tend to just take a step back, I'll wait till things get a bit better. I know, I'll admit that, you can slap me on the wrist afterwards. But a few years ago, I went to an Ipswich game, and I went with a friend, it was a beautiful Saturday afternoon, good, shiny sun, we were sitting in the sunshine, three o'clock game. Now, the whistle goes, the ref starts the game, everybody's playing, and then not long into the game, I hear this loud whistle amongst all of the other whistles. Now, you're like, that's strange, but well, there's 25,000 people in the stadium. But I know what it was. I heard this whistle, and I thought to myself, I think I know who that is. It's a strange thing to say, because it was on the other side of the stadium. I think I know who that is. And it's someone, some of you guys know, a guy called David Rowe. Big, big farmer fella. He's one of the most warm-hearted individuals on the planet and yet he's been given the spiritual gift of noise as well, and jolliness. <laughs> you know that guy? Yeah, but he, he just, and he whistles. So a few minutes later, there's this next whistle. I'm like, sure, that's David. So I turned to my friend to say, I think that's David on the other side. Well, what do you mean? There's a thousand other people amongst this crowd who are probably whistling at the same time, and you think that's David. Well, then a few moments later, there's this lull in the game. And he goes, a little bit quiet, but there's still a lot of noise. And I hear this shriek from the other side of the ground. Come on, town! I'm like, I know, I know that's David, I am sure. Now, he doesn't have a mobile phone, so I had to call him up after the game and say, look, were you there today? Yeah, I was. Were you sitting on that side of the stadium in that section? Yeah, I was. Well, I could hear you, I know it. Isn't that funny? 25,000 people, and I heard him. That tells you how loud he is. But, now, here's the thing. There are so many voices in our world. It's true for the Colossians and it's true for us. So many competing voices. But Paul is praying for the Colossians to know what is true. To know God's will. To see it with wisdom and understanding. That amongst all of the thousands of other noises, the truth, the claims, this is what's true. That you would know this. You would hear the right voice, Colossians. Remember what Epaphras told you. Now this is what we need to be praying over other people, don't we? Isn't this what we're praying over our children? Isn't this what we're praying over the kids' groups and one another in this church? Isn't this what we pray for one another in community groups and the people we serve on teams with and the people we rub shoulders with and that person that burdens us, that we think we want them to see them flourish in Jesus, that they would hear the right voices? Don't we live in a world that comes at us with all manner of different claims of what is true? And it changes with the wind. Here's what sexuality is today. Here's what gender is today. Here's how you can live. Here's how you can use your body. Oh, and here's how to treat the unborn today. It's all, it's all, it changes all the time. It's crazy. It's a melee out there. So we're praying for others that they would hear the right voices to know what truth is and with all spiritual, so that spirit-given wisdom and understanding know what the will of God is. That's why Paul's praying for the Colossians is that they would know rightly. Now here's where things change a little bit here because he goes on to pray for the second part which is that they would walk worthy living a life that is pleasing to God. Now what we have here is three key elements in walking worthy. It comes across much more clearly in the American version of the ESV. Now the, the anglicized our version over here it doesn't come across very clear so the punctuation helps us to understand in the American version what's happening here. So after he says a life pleasing to him that's God Paul then details four, uh, sorry, three specific things that make up this worthy walk. That they would bear the fruit of good works, 
strength in everything, particularly the hard things, and a life characterized by thanks. So those are the three things that Paul details here. Now think, think about how these work. So this is all about living instinctively. But, but notice this. Paul, in this prayer, it seems like he's saying that when you know rightly, it's going to enable you to live distinctly. So, so knowing rightly is going to help us live in a way where these three things are exhibited. So Colossians, we want you to know rightly, and then you'll live in this way. But notice about these three things, fruit, strength, and thanks. All three of these things are the kind of things that cause the world around a Christian to say, who is the God that you worship? I need to know more. Think about it. The the fruit, the strength, and thanks. All the kinds of things that when the world around us, so true for the Colossians, look at their lives and say, no right, live distinct. You guys are living differently. Tell us about your God. So let's dive into this. How does Paul pray for this worthy walk? Have a look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I was kind of giggling to myself this week. If you read that literally, it's quite funny, isn't it? A worthy walk. I mean, it kind of makes you ask the question. It's a window into me laughing to myself in the office here. But think about, how does a Christian, how are we supposed to walk? Is it arm straight, back straight, what, what? No, we understand that that's not what Paul means, right? He's not speaking, literally speaking about the journey of life. How we walk, how we go through things, what characterizes our lives. So it's a life that's pleasing to him. That might sound quite overwhelming, but Paul's going to drive this home. Let's look at the first thing, fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the first thing here he's praying for, of what makes up this worthy walk for them, is that they bear fruit, good works, and the knowledge of God. Now we've talked about fruit relatively recently, so I'm not going to go into crazy detail here. But please bear in mind, when the Bible speaks about fruit in a Christian's life, it's quite diverse. Sometimes we just isolate fruit to people becoming Christians through us, right? So a fruitful Christian, you see other converts through them. A fruitful church, you see people coming to know Jesus. That, now that's true. But fruit in the Bible also refers to our conduct and character, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Hebrews 13, the fruit of our lips, the praise of his name. That's to do with how we speak and how we sing, right? But right here, it's pointing to good works. So it includes that. So, so fruit in the Bible is those observable signs in a Christian's life that they belong to Jesus. It's, it's those signs on the outside of our lives that said, there's the life of Jesus in them. That's what fruit is. But the fruit Paul is pointing to right here is good works and the knowledge of God. That their lives would look like this. Now I love in Paul's thinking here, and it's true across the Bible, is that knowing rightly produces good works. Knowing who God is, knowing the truth, having a changed identity in Jesus will result in a changed life which results in good works. Now we wouldn't say, and the Bible doesn't say this, knowing Jesus only results in good works. Because no people are, well, we've got to tell people about Jesus too. So it's not just about what we do. True, we do tell people about Jesus. But our lives need to be characterized by good works. Colossians, we want to see good works. Now if you look across the rest of the Bible, you'll see this is true and you'll look across Christian history, is that knowing rightly does produce good works. That's why the church in history has been known for being a bunch of people that feed the hungry, a bunch of people that house the homeless, 
who serve people who are struggling with addictions. That's why we reach out to the vulnerable and the people who are sidelined. That's why when you look throughout history, Christians are the ones who are dealing with the vulnerable people, housing orphans in their own homes. That's what Christians do. That's what Paul wants to see in the life of Colossae. He wants to see these believers living in such a way that they are not only telling people about Jesus, but they are seeking the good, the advantage, and the benefit of the people around them. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week. It's just come out from the Gospel Coalition called Recorded. And what they do in this, this podcast is they're retracing some of the steps of the attack on September the 11th in 2001. Anniversary of 20 years was yesterday. Now, in the first part of the podcast, they take some time going through some of the experiences of what people went through. So they, they do interviews of people who just lived, lived a couple of blocks away from the Twin Towers, and they went through some of their experience. Stuff we probably don't even think about, the, the, the dust, the ash, the health, the health uh, issues that came up decades, uh, years and years later. They show how people were fleeing the scene, and really eye-opening to what trauma people went through. But the second part of this podcast, they, they take a look at how churches in New York responded. And in particular, they take a look at Redeemer Church in central New York, led by Tim Keller, one of my heroes, Tim Keller at the time. And it was just amazing how these churches were responding. Right in the wake of the tragedy, as the city is still trying to wake up and come to terms with what's happening, this church has already opened up their counseling center to help people deal with the trauma that they've been through. They've, they've mobilized churches across the nation who are then giving money into a pot so they can help other people get back on their feet. Millions of dollars from across the U.S. were just pouring in so they could help other people. And then they set up this office so they could help people find their jobs. Thousands, tens of thousands of people had lost their jobs in an instant. Life was all over the place. They weren't in their homes. There were bills to be paid. And they made it happen. They, they helped them. So, so this church... they. They still told people about Jesus. That's vital. But their lives were characterized by good works. And you know what? In the wake of this, what happened is the amount of Christians in that city has just been going up and up and up ever since. 1% of, less than 1% of the people in New York before the attack would have characterized themselves as having a living relationship with Jesus, an evangelical. By 2011, that was 3%. 2016, that was 5%. Now, you're like, that doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah, we want to see more, right? But when you think it's a city of 30 million people, that's a lot of people coming to know Jesus. 70 churches were planted in the 10 years after the event in central New York. Now, why was that? Yeah, I'm sure it was people asking big questions, because in the wake of a tragedy, we do, right? Come face to face with life and death. But I think it's also because the city said, look at that church. Look at those Christians. Look at how they were responding to the pressing needs that we had. Look at them go. Tell us about your Jesus. I think this is what Paul is praying for the Colossians, isn't he? We want to see the fruit of good works and the knowledge of God in your life. That what you know would change how you are meeting the needs of the world around you. It's a fruit. Second thing Paul prays for in this worthy life is strength. Have a look at verse 11 here. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Now let's pick apart that sentence there. Being strengthened. So, so the Colossians are passive in this. This is something that happens to them. So they are being strengthened by God. 
What's it say? Being strengthened with all power. This, is, this is means to the, to the highest degree to be full and complete with this strength. According to his glorious might, so this is consistent with God's glorious character, for all endurance and patience with joy. Two interesting words that are used there for this strengthening, right? For endurance. This carries the, the sense of bearing up in the face of difficult circumstances, endurance. Patience carries the sense of forbearance when dealing with difficult people. So think about what Paul's praying here. Is he's asking that God would strengthen the Colossians so that they would have strength to go through seemingly impossible situations but also deal with seemingly impossible people. Now notice how those two things, those are strength given by God, but they are two things that cause the world around a Christian to ask the question, tell me about your God. Think about Christians that you know who have been profoundly strengthened by God in some of the hardest circumstances. It's amazing. I was only spending some time with someone this week, this week who's had some really difficult health issues going on, lost a loved one, and was able to say, I know God's strength, and I know he's answering my prayers. That's an incredible inspiration. Somebody going through all of that. You, maybe even some of the most influential Christians in your life are so, because they went through adversity. Life was hard. And yet, they knew the strength of God, and it was obvious as you watched them endure it. It makes the world say, who's your God? And then dealing with difficult people, that causes the rest of the world to say, that's a distinctive way to live. I mean, think about how the world works, right? What's the attitude and how the world deals with people? Well, I'm only in this if it's worth, if it's worth it for me, right? As soon as this gets too difficult, as soon as it's going to cost me too much, I am out of this interaction and this relationship. That's how the world treats marriage. That's how the world will treat relationships. It's got to be worth it for me. But Christians aren't like that. We're the kind of people who engage in the mess of this world and the problems that people have, and we do so with joy, just as Paul said right here. Why do we do that? Because we know God has done exactly the same thing for us. In Luke's Gospel, I think it's in chapter 6, Jesus teaches on loving our enemy. That We're the kind of people that love difficult people. Even when we get nothing in return. People who hurt us. People who persecute us. And it is our joy to continue loving difficult people with all of the mess and the pain that they bring. Why? Because our Heavenly Father has been merciful to us as well. You know when we love difficult people and we still pursue them even though it's messy, it causes the world to say, there's something different about the God that you worship. Why are you so distinctive? So so Paul is praying that they would have this strength. The strength to bear up under the circumstances and the forbearance to continue with difficult people. Colossians are going to need that. Third thing that Paul prays for. He prays for thanks. Simply, he prays that their life would be characterized by thanksgiving. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in Light. So who do they give thanks to? Their Heavenly Father. Why? Because he's qualified them to share in the inheritance. That's their eternal, rich future with him. And he's been, they've been qualified for that with the rest of the Christians, and they are people of the light. So they are to lives that are characterized by thanks. That's part of this worthy walk. Now, yet this is an example of living a way that causes the rest of the world to say, you are distinctive. 
Now, I think often we, we misunderstand the significance of Christian thanksgiving as it characterizes our lives. We say to ourselves, well, it might be nice if that's something that comes my way and something that I learn to cultivate, but it's just on the edge. No, it's a central feature of our lives. Why? When a Christian gives thanks, it's a sign that a spiritual experience in Jesus has taken place. Follow me. When a Christian gives thanks, it's a sign that something has been received that wasn't earned but was given. You see that? Now think about how this works in Colossae. Even works in our world. Our world is full of many different worldviews and different religions. All of these have an underlying message that says, if you reach this bar, then you're going to be acceptable. That's how they all work. You, 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 you unpick and boil down these frameworks for understanding reality, they all have that at the bottom. If you live this way, if you are good enough, and if you hit this bar, if you can do this, this, and this, then you will be acceptable. If it's a religious, if it's, it's a, it's a religious message, it's going to be, if you do this, this, and this, then God will accept you, he will forgive you, and you can belong. But you've got to do this first. Now, thinking, think about that. Is there any reason in that way of thinking to give thanks? No, there's not. Because if you think you're doing pretty well and you're hitting the bar and therefore acceptable, you give yourself a pat on the back, but you've got no one to thank. Or otherwise, you're going to be feeling hopeless and you're going to be exhausted because you're not reaching the bar and therefore you're not accepted. So, so there's no reason to give thanks whatsoever. So this is what makes the Christian message distinctive because we flip that on its head. We don't say you have to do this in order to be accepted. You are accepted because of what Jesus has done. Now live for him. In Jesus, you have somebody who's done what you could never do. He's lived the perfect life. He's died the death on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's one new life that can be yours. And you can have that by faith. All of this is a gift. Now go ahead and live in response to that. What does that produce in someone's life? thankfulness. See, when a Christian gives thanks, it's a demonstration that something has been received and it wasn't earned, but it was given. So think about that in the context of Colossae. You've got people walking around saying, uh, no, 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 you have to do this tradition. You have to live like this. This is the ritual. This is the way to live. And once you've done all of that, then you're okay. Nobody's going to give thanks with that. But if the Christians are in the middle of the city, Living lives that are characterized by gratitude and thanksgiving. It's going to cause the rest of the city to say, something's different here. You've received something and it was given to you. What is it? Do you see how important thanksgiving is in the life of a Christian? That's why Paul is praying for it. That's why giving thanks is such a key feature in this letter to the Colossians. Let's step back here. Paul has prayed that they would know rightly that they would live distinctively, showing the fruit of good works, strength in adversity, and being characterized by thanks. I wonder if you could kind of stand in the Colossians' shoes as they read this. That's intimidating, isn't it? Well, hang on a second. How are we? We're young Christians. We're just figuring out some of the basics here. And we're supposed to live a life that is worthy of God, pleasing to him. Paul, crazy. How do we even do this? Where do we find the strength? Which is why I think 
Paul finishes the, letter in, finishes the prayer in this way. 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see what Paul's doing right here? It's yet another reminder. Colossians, saints, this is who you are. You have been delivered. You have been redeemed. You have been forgiven. You have a completely new identity. Transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians, BRBC, that is who you are. You see, the Christian life isn't us trying to figure out some kind of to-do list so that we can feel acceptable. The Christian life is leaning in on the grace and mercy of God in Jesus and learning to become who we already are in Jesus. So if we ever want the strength to be able to live this kind of life, it always begins with Jesus and the good news as the wellspring for what goes on in our lives. When we know Jesus, it produces this kind of a distinctive life. That's something we need to remember too. And it's something Paul roots for the Colossians. Because of who you are, now live a distinctive life. So what we've seen this morning is Paul pray for the Colossians. He moves from thanksgiving to now intercession. And his prayer is quite simple. That they would know rightly and be able to discern wisdom and understanding what it is that God wants, what it is, what is true, in and amidst the chaos of this city. And he asked that they would live distinctively a worthy walk with fruit, strength, and thanks. So now what we're going to do is take that person you thought about at the beginning, someone whom you would get crazy amounts of joy to see them flourish in Jesus. Let's go ahead and let's pray for them in the way that Paul prays for the Colossians. So join me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the absolute privilege of praying. Father, we pray that you would grow us in the way that we pray, in our understanding of prayer, and that we would experience vitality in our prayer lives individually and collectively as a church. Father, we thank you for the way that Paul prays for the Colossians. And we are praying for that person or those people that we have in mind right now. Father, firstly we ask that you would help them to know your will, what you want for your people. Father, give them wisdom and understanding so that they would be able to know what your way is in a confusing, difficult world filled with many competing voices. Father, we pray that they would stand firm on truth, that they would know, that they know, that they know what is true, who is true, and how you have defined your people to live fruitfully. Father, secondly, we pray that because they know rightly that they would live distinctly. Father, empower them and strengthen them to live a worthy walk, pleasing to you. Father, we ask for fruit in their life. 
the good work and the knowledge of God. Father, we pray their lives characterized not only by declaring the goodness of the good news and what you have done for us, but also characterized by good works. So much so that the people around them say, tell me about your Jesus. Father, we pray you would give them strength. Strength in all difficult circumstances. Strength in dealing with difficult people. Father, would you give them a testimony that says that they knew your strength even in the hardest moments and with the most difficult people. Finally, Father, we ask that you would characterize their lives by thanks. And Lord, we know that is done when they know that you have qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So Father, we pray that they would be so caught up with the reality that their salvation is a gift, that what pours out of them is a life of thanksgiving. Father, we're asking for them, knowing the profound mystery of prayer, that while you are totally and completely sovereign, you hear us and you move in this world because of our prayers. Father, we're lifting them up. We are interceding for them. We are pleading that you move in their lives. And we are praying in the matchless, majestic, and gentle name of Jesus. Amen.